1510 WMEX Quincy Boston and 101.1 FM W266DQ Quincy WMEX Quincy Boston streaming at WMEXBoston.com and on your smart speaker just say play WMEX The greatest hits of all time are back This is the all new WMEX WMEX Boston They singing all night, drinking wine, spooty-ooty, drinking wine. Wine, spooty-ooty, drinking wine. That's right, it's time for Wine by Design with Len Prasuti here on 1510 WMEX. Len is a certified wine educator with over 30 years in the wine industry, and he's a WMEX good guy. Here's your host, Len Prasuti. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, it's going to be a fun show tonight. I have to admit, I love champagne. We drink a ton of it at my house, much more than we should on what we make. But before I go into that, we're going to talk about all the ins and outs of it. Just wanted to relate an experience we had with letting wine breathe on Christmas Day. So we pick out this great, one of the best bottles we have in our cellar. Uh, at least we thought it was going to be. It was 1989 Comp Armand Pomard Claude Epneau. It's a an inexpensive wine, even back when it was released. Anyway, I'm reading about it, um, and a lot of people think, hey, you know, it's, it's getting there. It might be just a little bit over the hill. And I'm reading this, and I say, well, I don't know. It, I've been having really, really good luck with older wines. So we planned on giving it three hours air. And as I'm decanting it, now the color's not bad. I'm, I'm showing these little kind of amberish, yeah, borderline on light brownish hints, but pretty good color. But I'm getting these whiffs of what we in the trade refer to as volatile acidity, or it's like hints of vinegar. Not a good sign. I've never done this before, quite frankly, but it's Christmas, you know, this big expensive piece of beef that we're going to be roasting. I decanted another very, very good wine and, you know, we'll see what happens. And I, I tasted the wine. It was so, so I, but I've had that happen a lot with the first sip. So long story short, we're cooking and all that. We're about three hours in now. And I taste the wine and it just had transformed. A wine that I thought might actually be vinegar was drop dead gorgeous. Just this beautifully intense fruit, elegant. Um, oh my God, this really still some elements of ripe cherry, these notes of dead leaf. It was incredibly complex and long, ethereal. I often talk about sometimes the wine just seems to dissolve in a cloud of flavor in your mouth. And that's what was happening. Like one of the great red wine drinking experiences of our lives. And we thought it might not turn out that way. But anyway, on to champagne. We're talking about the real thing here, that grown within that delineated region of uh, northern France there, the Champagne region. Production's about 325 million bottles. So they make a lot of it. 
One of the things that they have done incredibly well, though, is kept the bar very high in terms of quality. When you see an actual champagne label, it's pretty much going to be decent. It's very rare to get a bad champagne. And certainly there's some that are a lot better. We're going to be talking about that in a bit. But they're about 10% of the world's sparkling wine by volume, but over double that, 21% by value. One of the new things that's kind of been happening for some time there is it used to be all the big champagne houses that did all the production. And there'd be maybe one or two little small growers that were taking their own grapes from their own vineyards and making a little bit of wine, but it wasn't really significant. Now the growers are up in the 27, 28% range. So they become a real force there. And one of the fun things about that, they're making wines from their grapes, but sometimes they're growing these off the wall grapes. We're going to be talking about the grapes, the champagne, it's primarily three, but it's become very interesting because you can get a wine made totally from the Arbani grape, which is a really rare grape in Champagne, not much of a planet at all. But the categories exploding in the States. Um, from 2020 to 2021, Champagne increased 67%. People are going to it more and more to celebrate. And boy, Americans are really drinking a lot more wine than ever before. Over three quarters of us drink it at least once a month through the year, and a full 25% drink champagne or sparkling wine at least twice a week. Let me tell you, we're picking up the slack at our house in case you're not meeting that quota. But the nice thing is it's not become for these really special celebrations. It's become for like almost an everyday thing. It's like, oh, geez, we made it through the week. One of my fondest memories was my wife, Andrea, and I were working our tails off, quite frankly, when we were young, and we didn't have a lot of disposable income. But after one of these hellish weeks where we were both putting in overtime and everything like that, Friday night came around. And we found this Chinese restaurant, Route 1 North of Boston, that was serving a mum's honest-to-God French champagne for about what you'd pay for it in the store. We made it a point of we went there every week, and it was just so nice. There was a live band. We got a chance to dance. We have our poo-poo platter in a bottle of real French champagne, and oh, my God. It was one of those really special moments that uh, we'll absolutely always remember for the rest of our lives. But now on to the champagne itself. Now, I'm going to talk about how opening a bottle safely can be done. But first of all, I want to go through a few different facts about champagne. One of the reasons you have to be very careful is there's about 90 pounds per square inch of pressure in a champagne bottle. We're talking three times that the pressure of an automobile tire. So it's really intense. Um, it took them a while to regulate the whole thing too when they were making champagne early on. It was dangerous working in the cellars because the glass wasn't that strong. 
And these bottles would sometimes explode near someone's head that was working in the cellar and kill them. Really not, not great. But by the law of averages, for those of you that have listened to my promo, you're more likely to be killed by a flying champagne cork than a poisonous spider bite. Now, that is absolutely true. Now, I think they've gotten a little bit better at treating poisonous spider bites that may have entered into it, but it can be dangerous. Man, did I learn that the hard way. <laughs> the very first time I opened a bottle of sparkling wine, I was in college, and I was sick, and I thought, you know, if I drink a little wine, I'll feel better, which turned out to be true. But you can imagine, I never opened a bottle before. I'm looking straight down <laughs> at the bottle, loosen that wire cage, the cork shoots up out of the bottle, hits me under my eye, flips my glasses totally over my head, and I had the worst shiner of my life for two weeks after that. Try explaining that to your friends at school. Oh yeah, I got hit by a flying champagne cork, right. Well, come to find out that champagne cork can go up to 100 miles per hour. When it's moving that fast, it only takes about five hundredths of a second to get to your head if you're opening it, opening it nearby. So you do have to um, be careful there, too. One of the things to lighten it up a little bit, the world's distance record for a cork popped out of a chill champagne bottle. It's 177 feet and nine inches. That's in the Guinness Books of, of World's Records. And, you know, we're talking almost two-thirds of a football field here. It's really funny. Um, I realized that it could travel a long distance when uh, I had just gotten out of school and I was traveling uh, on the road with a, a top 40 band. And we opened this beautiful resort-style um restaurant uh, in in New Hampshire that had this enormous atrium. They included all of our food and wine as part of the package. We were drinking champagne every night. And the waiters and waitresses who really, you know, man, they weren't used to opening it. Nobody ordered it back then, are popping the champagne cork across the atrium. I mean, literally, you almost couldn't see the other side of it, and they were getting pretty close to hitting it. But anyway, a couple quotations, and then we'll move on how to open the bottle. Probably the most famous quotation was by Dom Perignon. Um, he didn't invent champagne, but you're going to learn a little bit later that he added a lot to the development of it. And he was said to have uttered, when first tasting the sparkle, Come quickly, I'm tasting stars. What a, what a great poetic way to put it. There's uh, another quote that's uh, attributed to Madame Lily Boulanger, or Bollinger, who owns the top, one of the top houses in Champagne. She said of it, I only drink champagne when I'm happy and when I'm sad. Sometimes I drink it when I'm alone. When I have company, I consider it obligatory. I trifle with it if I'm not hungry and drink it when I am. Otherwise, I never touch it unless I'm thirsty. I have to admit, I love that one. But on how to safely open a champagne bottle. You have to 
observe a couple things right from the beginning. Always hold the bottle at a 45 degree angle. That's really critical. If you hold it straight up and down, when you open it, you're really increasing the odds of the champagne gushing out of the bottle. There's something about dispersing the equilibrium of pressure in the bottle when it's at a 45 degree, ang degree angle that it doesn't kind of jump out of the bottle like that. The other thing is right from the beginning, you want to firmly grasp the cork with your thumb, with your left thumb, right dead center, as if you were trying to hold the cork into the bottle, wrap your other four fingers around the neck, then you're going to have to deal with this cage. I'm assuming you've already taken the foil off at this point. That's where it gets tricky. Now, one of the things they've done as an industry to help us here is they've made the number of half turns that it takes to loosen the cage uniform. It's exactly six half turns. I've done it a million times. I count them every time. It's always six half turns. So then you open that cage. Now, without removing your thumb from that cork, you join the thumb with the other fingers holding on to that cork very firmly while again holding the bottle at the 45 degree angle and then gently twisting the bottle. And at that point, the, the cork will come out. What we're trying to achieve here is not that loud pop because you lose a lot of the bubbles when you do that. Uh, the correct way has always been trying to get the champagne kiss or the champagne sigh, like a uh, something simple like that. And to do that, I kind of angled down just a little bit. But any way you open, it's fine. If it makes some noise, hey, you're, even the great champagne houses are now turning around and saying, you know, it's not such a bad thing to make noise because I know what they're thinking. The people do it in a restaurant. They hear the pop and, ah, somebody's drinking champagne here. Um, maybe we should get some too. But anyway, a little bit about the basics of the Champagne region and what makes it so special. The big thing about it are two factors. Now, one's a cool climate, but there are a lot of places that have cool climates. The thing that makes it really special is this chalky soil that is there in the best vineyards. Uh, chalk is just a porous limestone, and it retains water incredibly well. And it has this way of giving it back to the vines gradually so that it keeps enough stress in the vines that it the fruits really concentrated in good but at the same time it has enough water to uh to fully ripen and, and promotes promotes excuse me deep root growth which is always a good thing we've talked about that before and will in the future now on to the grapes the grapes are ones that we all know chardonnay pinot noir there's a, a third major grape there, Pinot Meunier, that isn't quite as well known, but is there, uh, it's a red grape, the Pinot Noir and the Pinot Meunier are red grapes that provide this almost kind of creamy, immediate fruitiness to it that allows the wine to be enjoyable very early on. There are four others, Petit Mislay, Arbain, uh, Pinot Blanc, and Pinot Gris, but all those together are way less than even half of a percent of the vineyards. The vineyards are rated 
so that some are considered to be better than others. The rating system was originally, now that we're talking some time ago, between 80 to 100, and the vineyards rated between 90 and 99% were considered to be the Premier Cru's and those at 100% Grand Cru. It's the only place where they make that distinction officially or did that some Premier Cru vineyards were better than others. But today that's not in effect but people still remember those classifications and they do base the price that the grapes get when they sell them on that. So it makes a big difference to the growers if it's a classified vineyard or not. A little bit about the styles. There's several of them. Vintage, all the grapes for a vintage champagne must come from that year. They can't come from any other years. All the other non-vintage blends, they're blending from other years. And they require additional aging, a minimum of three years, but the vintage champagne is usually a lot more than that. Non-vintage would probably be more properly called multi-vintage. And it's a blend of grapes from several years and different areas within uh, champagne. Now, that's got to spend 12 months on that at the lees. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, the fermentation lees that are in there for a, a total of 15 months. So not, as, not meant to be aged as long as the vintage. There's the Tete de Cuvée, which is the top uh, blend of the house. That's where the Doms and the uh, Cristals and all that come in. Blanc de Blanc, it's made from just the white grapes. So usually primarily Chardonnay, but the other grapes uh, that I mentioned before, other than uh, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier are white grapes too, and they can blend those in. Blanc de Noir, is a champagne made only from the red grapes. And those can be a ton of fun to drink. They tend to have a little more body to them and more red fruits and can sometimes have that little, just a little hint of color, um, but not like the next category, which is rosé. And that's different than many other areas of France in that you're actually not allowed to make a red wine and blend it into a white wine to make a rosé elsewhere. But that's the primary way that they make rosés in Champagne. They can still do it with just you know, a little bit of time on the skins to pick up the color. But usually they make somewhere between eh, 5% and 20% of the final blend will be an actual red wine that they blended into that. And they are very, very highly regarded. They tend to be at least 25-30% more money than the regular non-vintage brute. The sweetness levels get a little tricky. And to understand them, it really kind of helps to know that in the beginning, all champagne was sweet. Uh, so we're starting from sweet. And the sweetest, more than 5% residual sugar, is called deux, which means sweet in French, then when we're going to a, a lesser sugar level, now you don't see many of the actual do, but the demisecs are around that three point residual up to that five point. And there are a number of them that can be a ton of fun, Nectar Imperial and these things that are especially good if you're serving it with a dessert, like a wedding cake, if you want to serve a, uh, a champagne at your wedding. Sec is getting drier still. Now we're uh, a little under the 2% residual sugar, but still up to about that three. Extra dry is where we're actually getting into 
dry champagnes, which can be confusing because sec means dry. You know? So it's the extra dry where you've gotten to that point where it's 1.2 grams of liter is the threshold of perception of sweetness. So with extra dry, and it just goes up to about five more grams other than that. So that's where it has a little touch of fruitiness, but not really sweet. Then you get into the brutes where it is bone dry, and that's less than 12 grams of residual sugar. The extra brute is half of that. But there is a category where they don't add any additional sugar at all. And that uh, is something they call it sans dosage because the dosage is where they get the sweetness in the wine. So they call that ultra brut, brut sauvage, brut natural, uh, pas dosage. Uh, and there are a lot of different names for them. But those are the really, again, super kind of bone dry ones. Well, I wanted to get into a little bit about the method. Dom Perignon, a really interesting figure in uh, French Champagne. He lived from 1638 to 1715, and he did a lot. Didn't invent it, but he did a lot to really help it along and help it become viable. He perfected this art of blending from different sites in different years. He actually invented the shallow champagne press that allowed them to press the grapes very quickly to get the uh, red grapes in particular off the skins before they pick up any color. He introduced the use of stronger glass from England because England was so big into ships, they outlawed the burning of trees to make glass. So the only viable alternative was coal, which burned hotter and made for a much, much stronger glass. And he reintroduced the use of the uh, cork stopper there. But just going to go through it quickly. Uh, we'll elaborate on it another day. But I do have some recommendations that I definitely want to save some time for. Grapes are pressed quickly to keep any color out of them. They undergo a normal white wine fermentation. The base wine's blended. It's Then they mix it with a little sugar and yeast and put like this crown cap on it and lie it in the cellars. And that's what they refer to on the lees. So it's on the fermentation yeast. And that's where it picks up a tremendous amount of uh, complexity and depth. Then to clarify it, they put it in this board that's an angled board that has angled holes in it called the pupetra. And they start out horizontal. You give the bottles a shake. After weeks, they end up going straight up and down. So all the yeast is at the bottom of that bottle cap. They put it through a freezing brine solution. An ice plug forms around the settlement and then uh, the sediment, excuse me. And then in a step called degoujement, they pop that out and fill it with a, a little more wine. And that's where they regulate the sweetness of the wine. So that's a, just a, a quick kind of nutshell of um, how that is all going on there. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is obviously, I'm sure a number of you haven't had uh, the chance to go out and buy your champagne yet. Traditionally, everybody buys it the day before. So I want to give you some recommendations. The one thing I do want to touch on, though, very quickly is pronunciation. The one that people always worry about is M-O-E-T. 
it is moet. It's of Dutch derivation. And the French would say um, moet de chandon. They say it very quickly. So it's moet, it's uh, perrier jouet. The other little thing that people sometimes don't get exactly right is it's verve clicot. And that's the way the French pronounce it. Uh, for some reason, there's an EU there. So some people tend to way overpronounce the uh, the. And that's, that's not the way they, they pronounce it at the Champagne House. So anyway, got that off my chest. Um, Non-vintage Brutes first. The one that for me is just an outstanding bottle. They make a decent amount of it, so it's readily available, is the Louis Roterer. they now calling it Collection 244. And that's because they've done... 244 different blends to come up with this wine. It's really intense, full-flavored, rich. Some of the base wine has been aged in oak, so it has a lot of depth and complexity. It's one of those great champagnes that you can have with dinner and it'll stand up to a lot of foods. Not inexpensive, uh, $65, $75. The other one that's widely available that is of a different style is the Moet de Chandon Brut Imperial. Uh, that's a little more elegant. You know, it's got a, a little touch of a minerality and a white peach and very easy to drink. Another one that's becoming more and more popular in the United States, even though right now it's the most popular champagne in all of France, is the Nicolas Soyat Brut, um, which you can find, believe it or not, for under $40. Now, that has a really beautiful kind of creaminess to it, but yet it's clean and it's got some nice citrus. Really, really easy to drink. I have to admit, though, one of the ones that we came across relatively recently is this one called Male, Brut Premier Grand Cru. Now, Grand Cru, when you see Grand Cru on the label, you know, it came from the very best vineyards in France, uh, in the Champagne region. So you would expect that to be a big level up. And the wine is fantastic. Um, there's beautiful aromatic spices, some ginger, really intense, complex, uh, hints of like apricot, pear, uh, great complexity and length. You can get it for under $50. So that's a great, great value. Um, did want to touch upon the rosés. As I mentioned, rosés are really super highly uh, prized in, in the Champagne region. And you know something? The best of them aren't cheap. There's the one that's always been recognized as way over-delivering because some of these people who are making tete de cuvées make tete de cuvée rosés that can be in the like six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollar range. But the Bilicat Samon Brut Rosé is one that is pretty widely available. It sells for about a hundred dollars. A really elegant, very, very beautifully made, uh, great rosé. Uh, if you want to try a, a, a super one, but the other one that is of its level and perhaps even surpasses it in a different style is the Laurent Perrier Brut Rosé. That has a lot more complexity and depth to it. 
and a lot more flavor weight. And man, that one is just the flavors are so vivid and intense. It's a ton of fun to drink. If you just want to explore the category, there's a Montadon Rosé out there for about $50. But just wanted to mention uh, a couple of the Tete de Cuvées for those of you that are really into kind of pulling out all the stops. The best champagne historically has been considered to be Krug. Uh, that really came home to me when I was visiting the winery and was told by them that, you know, Krug is considered to be, or was, especially, especially back then, to be at such a level above them all that when all the champagne salesmen from all the different houses met, it was agreed that they drink Krug. At Krug, they make as fine a product as can be made, sparing no expense. I've, I, I liken it to Chateau de Chem, which it's, it, it's as well as can humanly be done. And to the point where one of the things now, they have machines to do this now, but way back when, it wasn't that long ago, but maybe 15 or so years ago, they had a person, a full-time person that did nothing but smell the champagne corks before they were put into the bottle because his nose was said to be so sensitive that he could pick out cork bottles and eliminate them from the uh, inclusion in, in Krug champagne. And it's very, very rare to get a, a cork bottle of Krug. The other one, if you want to really pull out all the stops, is Louis Rotoro Cristal. Um, that's about 450 compared to the Krug's 250, up to 300 around that range. But the one that if you see out there, you should really make an attempt to snag. And I really think this one's worth a splurge. If you can find it, you can find it around $200. The Piper Heitzig Rare 2008. It's among the top, the 2002 and the 2008 are among the top dozen champagnes I think I've ever tasted. And I'm including the 1947 Vivre Clicquot and the 1961 Vintage Krug and a ton of other Tete de Cuvée bottlings. So, well, that's about it for this week. Uh, you've been listening to Wine by Design with Lenon 1510. I wanted to wish everyone out there a really happy, healthy, and prosperous New Year. Till we meet again next week, all the best in wine and life.